From Thriller Digital, welcome to Secrets, Lies, and Alibis. I'm your host, James Lee. Due to the graphic nature of the details of this case, listener discretion is advised. Episode 5, I Didn't Kill Nobody. It is two weeks later on March 10th, during the punishment phase, or penalty phase, of the trial, and Clemente at one point rises from his seat and yells, They're trying to kill me for no reason. I didn't do it. I didn't kill nobody. As punishment deliberation concludes, the jury votes 7 to 5 to impose the death penalty for the murder of Cheryl, and 9 to 3 to impose the death penalty for the murder of Carol. The trial judge then sentences Clemente to death on June 30th, 2006. According to court records, the judge sentenced Clemente to the death penalty because the aggravators of the crime heavily outweighed the motivators. Judge Eaton based this on the following aggravators for the murder of both women. One, the defendant was previously convicted of another capital felony, the murder of the other woman. Two, The capital felony was committed while the defendant was engaged in the commission of a burglary. Although the evidence, including cash, credit cards, and Samantha's testimony regarding the amount of money laying around the home, does not suggest that this was a burglary. Three, the capital of the felony was especially heinous, atrocious, or cruel. Judge Eaton found two additional aggravators for the murder of Carol Barris. One, The capital felony was committed for the purpose of avoiding or preventing lawful arrest. Two, the victim of the capital felony was particularly vulnerable due to advanced age or disability. Other mitigating circumstances were found, but did not do enough to lessen the severity of his sentence. One, he was under the influence of extreme mental or emotional disturbance. Two, his substantially impaired ability to appreciate the criminality of his conduct. Three, his age, 24. Four, he had a long-term substance abuse problem. Five, he grew up in a dysfunctional family setting. Six, he suffered childhood abuse. Seven, he had poor performance in school. Eight, brain damage resulting from substance abuse. So now that all of the evidence has been presented, witnesses have been interviewed, depositions have been completed, and a conviction has been obtained, we can't help but think that the defense may have missed some opportunities to introduce other potential suspects, and that both sides may have failed to investigate certain information that could have resulted in significant movement in the case. A few things come to mind immediately when thinking back on all of the things the defense could have used to cast out on Clemente's guilt. Before we continue, let's note that these are just theories, and not accusations in any way, shape, or form. Failure to investigate Samantha and Mark Despite Samantha's initial attempt to avoid admitting she went to Mark Van Sant's parents' house the night before, Hammert does not follow up or go to the Van Sant house to look for any incriminating evidence she or Mark could have possibly been attempting to conceal. In his report, There is no indication that Hemmert even went to the Van Sant house, let alone search the room where Mark and Samantha allegedly stayed or the bathroom they used. There is no evidence that he took pictures or checked for blood on Mark's parents' furniture, towels, or sheets. What about the shoes Mark didn't have on? 
It's surprising they didn't look through his shoe collection or assess if any of his shoes matched any impressions left at the scene. There is no indication that Grossi or any of the other SCSO crime scene investigators searched the Van Sant residence for any evidence. In hindsight, it seems like common sense that law enforcement should have made an effort to follow up on evidence at the Van Sant home. Not only were they some of the last people to admit seeing them alive, but Samantha and Cheryl had also engaged in an argument the night before the bodies were found. Hemmert knew from Mark that Samantha had previous mental health issues and had been diagnosed with intermittent explosive disorder. Samantha had previously been involuntarily committed to a mental hospital multiple times. Detective Hemmert fails to investigate another discrepancy between Mark and Samantha's stories. Samantha tells Hemmert that when Mark did not return to his house that morning, she kept calling him on his cell phone, but could not reach him because his phone was beside the bed where he and Samantha had been sleeping at the Van Sant residence. Hemmert knew, or reasonably should have known, this statement was another lie, because Mark had used his cell phone to call 911 when he arrived at the Williams' home and found the deceased. In fact, he told Hemmert he called 911 from his cell phone, stating he called at 8.45. You can check my call history on, I called 911. Despite this, Hemmert fails to follow up on Samantha's lie by checking either Mark's or Samantha's phone records and then confronting either of them. Why is Samantha lying about his cell phone? Is she covering up for him or was it something she honestly just mistook? Detectives Hemmert and Grossi also failed to corroborate another important part of Samantha and Mark's stories. Mark told Hemmert he had come to the Williams' home shortly before 9 a.m. on June 17th to pick up Samantha's clothes from the washing machine. But detectives Hemmert and Grossi never checked the washing machine to see if Samantha's wet clothes were in there. The investigation went on for eight days after the bodies were found. Detectives Hemmert and Grossi were at the scene of the crime multiple times over a course of a week before the scene was released, but never opened the washing machine to corroborate Samantha and Mark's stories. It seems only logical that detectives would want to validate his reason for being at the house in the first place. If no wet clothes were discovered in the washing machine, Mark's story that he was there to get Samantha's clothes would have been called into question. If clothes were discovered in the washing machine while still damp, they could have been tested for blood, leading to the possible question of whether the clothes were washed in an attempt to clean up after the murders. Hemmert and Grossi also failed to take any photographs of Samantha Williams' hands or arms, despite knowing she got into a fight with her mother the night before the bodies were discovered. Notably, Detective Hemmert observed marks on Samantha's arms, yet failed to have any photographs taken of those marks. Remember, officers photographed both Mark and Clemente, and Mark had injuries to both arms. Unlike Mark or Samantha, Clemente was thoroughly examined and photographed. Investigators photographed his hands, fingers, and arms, as well as having him remove his shirt to photograph his torso and back. His shoes and clothing were seized by investigators. Clemente also agreed for police to collect buccal swabs and fingernail scrapings. Detectives Hemmert and Grossi should have followed the same basic investigative procedures as they would have with any other potential suspects or witnesses. What about the last two people to see Cheryl and Carol alive? Maintenance Mike and their neighbor, Diane Schroyer. 
No further investigation was done to confirm their alibis the night of the crime. Another rather shocking fact is that the police never follow up on Clemente's alibi. They do not go to pretzels to ask bartenders, managers, or other employees if they had seen Clemente the night of the murder. They never inquire about surveillance cameras or anything else. But they are aware of the fight that night, which may have resulted in a police report, as well as the other five alibis claiming they were at pretzels. So how could one not check? Counsel speaks with just two members of Clemente's family, his two sisters who live in Orlando. They never contact anyone in Honduras, where Aguirre had spent his entire life, nor do they follow up on the 43 letters that they received from Clemente's family and friends in Honduras. Yes, 43. Some of the letters explained that he had personally witnessed brutal murders as a teenager and that Honduran police had failed to investigate the violent gangs that committed them. Trial counsel never contacts any of these people and simply made their letters available for the jury. Clemente had found his friend Edwin murdered in the street by gangs. Honduran police pried a sobbing Clemente off of his friend's body, and then they reportedly threw Edwin's body away like it was trash. Counsel never speaks with anyone in Honduras, including Aguirre's own mother, despite the fact that she had written them a letter with help from a friend because his mother is illiterate and only speaks Spanish, offering her assistance and providing her phone number and address. If they had, they would have learned that Aguirre grew up in an environment with violence and police corruption, possibly explaining why he did not go to the cops in the first place. In the midst of everything that was overlooked and people who were not investigated, the work of fingerprint analyst Donna Burks is called into question in 2007. Did you know that one in five Americans have had at least one package stolen off their porch in the last 12 months? Eufy's security cameras can help ward off potential porch pirates with their groundbreaking facial recognition technology that determines if an object is human, a vehicle, or an animal. It can even recognize and identify different faces. Eufy has no monthly fee, so once you purchase your Eufy cameras, that's it. No more payments. Right now, you can get a discount on Eufy security cameras by clicking the link in our show notes. Eufy, smart home simplified. A co-worker of Burke's reports that Burke's made a positive identification of a print that was impossible to read. The review concludes that Burke's was incorrect when she claimed to have identified Clemente's print on the knife. In fact, the print is not suitable for comparison. Burks admitted under oath in a deposition that she had never actually examined the knife, the actual print on the knife, the laden lift from the knife handle, or compared any of these to the print actually taken of Clemente's palm. The positive identification of the palm print was a complete fabrication. In addition, Clemente is right-handed, not left-handed, so if there were a positive identification on the knife, it would have been his right palm print. When Donna Burks first identified his left palm print, Clemente told his lawyer that he is right-handed, so it's impossible. And his lawyer said, it doesn't matter. If you touched it, you touched it. A fabricated handprint and a lack of blood evidence 
were only the beginning of this new twist in the story. On our next episode, we'll explore the evidence the police never investigated or presented in court, and the suspect they never considered. One person's story unravels, and a once thought to be inconsequential fact comes back to change the course of the investigation. You won't want to miss our next episode for secrets, lies, and alibis. See you next time.